This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal! From Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Wheelan. Oh, what a goal from Noel Wheelan. No power on it whatsoever. But Taibbi has made a horrendous error. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, it hasn't. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? And before we sign off from 2023, let's drop another excerpt from a bonus episode onto the feed. Let's go right back to December 1999. Leeds are at the top of the table. Travis are in the charts. David Ginola getting goal of the month. And let's roll the clock forward quickly to say in 2024, Quickly Kevin will be doing their only live show of the year at the London Palladium. Yes, joining the likes of 90 superstar Bruce Forsyth in having performed there. To get tickets, just search for Quickly Kevin London Palladium and you'll find the link. Right, here we go. A little excerpt from our bonus episode from earlier in the year as we all take a look back at December 1999. Now, usually we do this month in history, but we thought it'd be more fun to do... We've done a lot of Aprils and Mays. It seems we come that. It'd be fun just to do the last month in the 90s because it's the least 90s month in a way, I suppose. If you take the um, 2000s to be less 90s than the 80s and 90s, if that makes sense, <laughs> which I do, I'd say 80s football's more similar to 90s football than 2000s football is. Are we excited about this? Yeah. It's a great month, December 1999. Blair of the Millennium Dome. The Millennium Bug. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll come to that. What about you, Michael? Are you excited about this one? Yeah, I'm excited because I have a very kind of clear reference and marker point in my mind. That's all the memories are tied around. It's also, I'd say this is the last period of my sort of first love affair with football because it was my first year at uni. So I'd gone to university in September of that year. And then by spring the following year, 
my priorities were very much elsewhere. Well, let's talk about where we were. So tell us where you were. I was in Southampton at university, first year of university, living in halls. So I'd not moved far from the Isle of Wight. Great year. Great to live in halls. Yeah. And I'd say the United Champions League win and the treble had just happened. So there's that giddy euphoria of that as a United fan. And then the excitement of pastures new and going out into the world and forging your own path. But then football fell away a little bit in the subsequent, well, quite a lot in the subsequent years for me. So this, I think, was a sort of the warm afterglow of what, in hindsight, was the greatest period in my club's history. Yes. That is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because is there a what-do-we-do-now feeling, or do you not care? Are you just enjoying it? No, I think there was a feeling of invincibility that we'll probably win the treble next year. Increasingly, it had felt inevitable, like that was the promised land that we would win that trophy and Ferguson will win it. And then once you've won it, you're like, well, this is a dynasty now. We will compete at that level and we'll win it multiple times again, year after year after year. Yeah. And obviously that's not what happens. I've never really thought about that, but it is mad that you win it in 99 and then you don't win it again for another nine years. Everyone in that team is so young, like Beckham and Skulls. These players just, they feel like they're coming through at this point and this is the start of something. But in a way, it's a whole new team that wins the Champions League eventually, was it, in 2008? Yeah. In a way, is it an underachievement? Oh, what a claim, what a claim. Uh, <laughs> an underachievement in that that team should have gone on and perhaps won another Champions League? Should have won it more than once. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think there is an argument that Fergie didn't win enough European Cups or Champions League in his career, which is kind of mad to say. I think there are times where, way past the 90s, we came up against the greatest club team in the history of football in Messi's kind of peak Barcelona. But yeah, maybe in the early noughties, we did underachieve. And when he did, he win? Two. Two in total, yeah. Is that as low as Nimoy? That's really poor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say Fergie out. <laughs> How many years was he in the Champions League? Probably every year from 1993 to 2013. No, because 96, 97, it was only the league winners. But he still failed to win the UEFA Cup those years. That's even worse. <laughs> One way of looking at it is, Man United only won two more Champions League than West Ham over this period. <laughs> <laughs> and West Ham have won as many as Plymouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, what were you up to at this point, Chris? Well, this is actually the start of an unbelievable era for West Ham. Probably one of the best eras of my life because we win the Intertoto Cup in 99. We start... Uh, (laughs) That's another European trophy. Alex Ferguson didn't win that ever. (laughs) (laughs) I actually said that completely seriously, which is embarrassing now. Yeah. (laughs) Mike Tyson never won a lightweight title. <laughs> you know, uh, like we had Decanio, like Decanio signed in like '98. Joe Cole's coming through, Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, Michael Carrick, Jermaine Defoe. These are all coming through now, and you got Harry in charge. We end up finishing this season seventh, I think it is, and this has the third time in a row we finished in the top ten, of which we'd only ever done that fourteen times in our history. So it's unbelievable period, which ends with us getting relegated in 2003, which is still the most painful probably experience of my football in life. Where were you as a person? Were you heavily involved? December 99, I'm a season ticket holder. Yeah, season ticket holder this whole period. So this is peak West Ham for you. And what are you doing with your life? 
sixth form. Would have started sixth form in 99. Just started my A-levels. And I'll be doing that until the summer of 2001. So that's the same time frame as me. I just started sixth form. And I'm going to say it now. This was my period of least engagement with football. Wow. I think, man, you were dominating the Premier League. Plymouth were the worst we've ever been up to that point. And combined with going to sick form and getting heavily into music and thinking football was a bit uncool, if anything. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think I was the same. I think the kind of music took over my life in a way yeah. that it filled the football gap. And I'm, I'm sort of excited to talk about what was going on in the landscape of music around this time and your memories of it. In particular, like that year, it's difficult to pin down. Like 1999, I associate with like, one album in particular. But it was a particularly bad time for indie music, which I was into at the time as well, which is the uh, kind of absurdity of the situation. What what album would you associate it with, Michael? It's interesting you say that, because in hindsight, obviously, this is pre-Strokes New York explosion. But I remember at the time loving Travis and The Man Who. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I thought that album was fucking brilliant. Honestly, thought it was brilliant. <laughs> And obviously, you know, two years later, I'm like, oh, God, what was that? A load of bedwetters. Oh, I hate those guys. Hiding my Travis and the previous Travis album behind the first Strokes album and everything that followed. But that dominated. Like, I remember everyone listening to that and everyone discussing it. It was huge. You weren't into football because you were into Travis, is what you're saying here, Michael. <laughs> At this point, you had exchanged the greatest Manchester United team of all time, despite underachieving, yeah. for your love of the man who... <laughs> And I'm not going to rewrite history. I'm going to own that. Another album that defines this, International Velvet by Catalo- Catatonia. <laughs> Catalonia. Catalonia. <laughs> said Catalonia. Which is obviously where Manu had just won the Champions League. As well. more, more, more than a band. <laughs> yeah. I had that and Travis the Man Who. Those two were always with me, those CDs. Well, that's where we are. And Christmas, obviously, I think I might have got a Nintendo 64. This No, I didn't get an Nintendo. I would have got games for Nintendo 64. Whatever. It's Christmas. But more importantly, let's go on to the news of the month. Have we got anything to say about uh, George Harrison getting stabbed in his own house by a fan? I didn't quite realise how seismic that kind of event actually is when you think about it, if you know what I mean. At the time, I don't really remember it happening. My only memory is when George Harrison confronted him George Harrison shouted, Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, as a kind of, in many ways, a giveaway as to who he was in his own house. <laughs> this is just a thought I've always had about that, because obviously George Harrison died of lung cancer, didn't he? And he was stabbed in the lung. No, he got stabbed in the throat, didn't he? Oh, was it the throat? Oh, my God. Were you implying that he had a sort of a cancer-laced knife that he got stabbed with? Well, no, but it's like the Bob Marley story, isn't it? The classic Bob Marley, Danny Baker story. Which isn't true. That isn't true. Which isn't true, no. But it's just weird, isn't it? It's weird that he's dead a few years later of lung cancer having been stabbed in that area. All I'm doing is presenting the facts. (laughs) (laughs) You make up your own mind. Okay, I've made up my mind. (laughs) It's weird, really, to think of three of the Beatles being alive. Do you know what I mean? I wonder what it was like when John Lennon was killed. That must have been... Astonishing, but we'll never, we'll never know. It's a real drag, man. Yeah, it was a real drag. Boris Yeltsin handed over to Vladimir Putin on December the 31st of this year. Who knew that would be such a seismic moment in global history? He's been in charge for 23 years. 
did want to hear an interesting story about that that I read recently in a Vladimir Putin book, which is that Yeltsin had kind of teed Putin up and like they'd worked together really intently. It was a transition of power. He was handing over to Putin and like, I think it was a largely democratic election to an extent. And the oligarchs were like backing him financially. But then Yeltsin had kind of awaited in his apartment so that when Putin won, he would get a phone call. You know, he set it up. Putin never spoke to Yeltsin after he won. He never came to him oh, that wow. night. Yeltsin was just sat by the phone waiting for him to call or pop into the apartments, and Putin just completely ignored him. He was dead to him after that moment. Oh, my word. That's what David Moyes did with Alex Ferguson. Because <laughs> <laughs> David Moyes was so ashamed of Alex Ferguson's record in Europe that he felt he needed to distance himself. <laughs> <laughs> when Moyes took over, of course, he was like, the period of failure has ended. <laughs> we are here to turn this club around. To turn this club around. But the big news, and it was huge, was that it was the millennium. It felt so exciting for that to happen in your childhood or adolescence, I thought. It felt like the build-up had been a decade. I mean, maybe I'm putting too much on it, but it felt absolutely seismic to me. It felt like such a big deal at the time. And now all these years later, you kind of forget how big it was in that moment. Well, because it was actually not big. That's the thing. It was nothing. It was the change of a calendar. <laughs> Obviously, the main worries were the millennium bug. Yeah, that's my abiding memory, is the sort of sense of fear that had crept in that no one knew yeah. what could and what was going to happen. I remember genuinely being afraid that aeroplanes were going to fall out of the sky. Who the fuck is getting on an aeroplane over the millennium with that amount of pre-publicity? <laughs> Every worry was that aeroplanes falling out of the sky. That was always the phrase, aeroplanes will fall out of the sky. But it, it permeated, I think, so much that I remember thinking, well, maybe my VHS player will break. <laughs> Little things like that. There was a real like T2 kind of rise of the machines type vibe where you're like no one knows how have we overlooked this is this our version of the mayan calendar where things are just going to end because we didn't get the fucking zeros and ones right and it turned out nothing happened did it <laughs> literally nothing <laughs> but that was kind of exciting about it and then the other thing was the dome the dome was a huge controversy wasn't it, it was a huge error of judgment by the uh well, it was originally the Tory party, but then the Labour party decided to continue with it. Did any of you actually go? No. I went the following year. I mean, I'm sure it was the following year, but it also could have been the year after. But they had stripped it out by that point. They'd completely gutted it. And it was a giant, like, New Year's Eve rave party. Oh, wow. And it was just a load of, like, tents and marquees that they'd put up under this big, huge dome. The weather was awful. It was, like, dripping into the main arena. And I basically got pneumonia. We all went there as sort of as our uni friends. And my girlfriend's dad had to come and pick us up about three in the morning because they just found me huddled in the corner of the Millennium Dome, like shivering and shaking, <laughs> which I was going to die. It was honestly the worst wow. social night of my entire life. <laughs> Did you go, Chris? No, I didn't, no. But you lived in London or near London. Surely you knew people that were going. I don't know anyone who went. Do you not? But I remember seeing the pictures. There was like a huge yellow man in the inside, wasn't there? There was a huge body. That was the main thing people remember, wasn't there? But I didn't go until it was then the O2 Arena. That was the first time I ever went to Millennium Dome. But it was so controversial that they'd wasted this much. It's, considering the times we live in now, the fact that they'd built a bad tourist attraction was the main issue of the time. 
is a sign of quite how undramatic a political <laughs> time it was. The main issue was that the tourist attraction was unprofitable. That was it. Do you know what, as well? Guess how much it cost in 1999? £43 million. No, it must have cost more than that. It must have cost more than that. I thought Built was- in 15 months, the dome structure was delivered under budget at a cost of £43 million. That's the structure, though. I wonder whether the rest of it was expensive. But yeah, it felt like, well, this is it. This sums it up. New Labour's all about image. They don't know what they're doing. They've really messed up the Millennium Dome. <laughs> Little did they know. Three years later, that would be a fucking mess up. (laughs) The Millennium Dome wouldn't go down as the biggest error. They call it the Millennium Dome of Wars, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the millennium, we should touch on the number ones of the month because Cliff Richard's millennium prayer was his desperate attempt to be number one for the millennium. He was number one for the first three weeks of December. But then on the 25th of December, when a new chart came out, so it was a day when Christmas number one was announced on Christmas Day, Westlife's I Have a Dream became number one. Oh, that must sting. Poor Cliff. And then on January the 1st, Steps Say You'll Be Mine became number one. So I Have a Dream by Westlife was the number one as we went into the new millennium. And might I just say, at a time when being number one mattered. Do you think even then it matters? What a dreadful podium that is. (laughs) (laughs) Because normally it's not always the best song that gets to number one. Always number one over the course of the month. To find three that are that bad. Where the fuck are Travis? That's all I'm saying. Where, where is, why does it always rain on me? <laughs> Chris, are you saying that number one didn't matter? Anymore? I think it just now, it's just coming into not mattering. I would say, technically, this is the first one that didn't matter. Because it's, no, uh, it's Cliff's desperately trying to be number one. Do you remember this well? Wasn't there not a campaign with Cliff Richard where it was like, he could have a number one in every decade or something like that? Wasn't that attached to the campaign? And you just think, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> who gives a fuck? Do you know as well, whenever I see someone wearing trainers and a suit, my go-to reference is always, oh, Cliff Richard in the Millennium Prayer video. Is it? Yes. <laughs> Do you remember because he wore like trainers yeah. and a suit? Oh, wow. That's such a look, isn't it? Isn't it just the Lord's Prayer to a tune? Set to old Lang Syne. I mean, it's so unoriginal. In a way, it is quite original because no one else thought of setting the Lord's Prayer to old Langsa. It's an incredible decision in a way. Before we get onto football, one last thing. And Michael, what was going on in films at the time? Well, this was quite a big month for me, having gone back through my scrapbook of cinema stubs. Now, caveat, some of these wouldn't have been released in December. They might have been released a sort of month prior, but this is when I saw them. So the big one, the big release in that I saw it twice, 
either this month or once in November or once in December was American Pie, oh. which felt like a seismic release in terms of the sort of university fraternity, as it's not called in the UK. But I remember going to watch that with my new friends at film school and just laughing in a way that we'd never laughed before. Rewatched that film recently. It is so problematic. There are yeah. so many things that are an issue with that film <laughs> that we won't even go into, but you're like, Jesus, no. everyone in that, you're like, Mwah. we're not here to reanalyze American Pie. But I also think 99 <laughs> was a great year for cinema generally. But that month I also saw Fight Club. Wow. Saw that at cinema. Sixth Sense, another big yeah. release that we saw that month. What a month of films this is. The World Is Not Enough, which is possibly the worst, but definitely one of the worst Bond films. And then a sort of little scene and much derided at the time, but I think probably a bit of a cult classic now was the Ben Stiller comedy film Mystery Men, which was a sort of like strange, surreal kind of indie superhero. But that year was also American Beauty, Matrix, Magnolia, I think being John Malkovich possibly. It was 99 was notoriously a really brilliant year for, for cinema, but I'd seen a lot because do you guys ever have like a cinema mega pass? What's now Cineworld, back then it was UGC. So you pay like, I think it was like nine quid a month back then. And you just watch as many films as you want, which for a student on a limited budget, you're like, brilliant. We could watch three, four, five films a day. So that was a particularly strong month, I think. Why are there so many films out in that month? Is that a big month traditionally? I think November generally is quite a big run in because in America in particular, you have Thanksgiving and then the holidays. The sort of big thing on the horizon that year was new Star Wars prequels but they got eclipsed by The Matrix, kind of came from nowhere. There we go. But let's talk about the thing that me and Michael weren't that into at the time, but Chris loved football. (laughs) (laughs) What was going on in the world of football, Chris, that month? Okay, well, it wasn't a big story at all at the time, but Peter Beardsley plays his final game in England for Hartlepool United in December 1999. How old was he? He is 38. Not bad. Good old innings, wasn't it? Good old innings. But it's interesting at the end of his career. So I remember him at Newcastle, 93, 97. But do you remember 17 appearances for Bolton, 97, 98? No. Six appearances for Man City in 98. Fulham, Keegan's Fulham, that is, in 98. Plays 22 games. Science permanently plays one game. Then Hartlepool. And then finally, yeah, dropping right down the divisions to play. Yeah. But I'm sure we've discussed this before, but we'll discuss it again. What would be your preferred method if you're a footballing legend in your mid-30s? Cut and run, or you love the game so much you're willing to play it at an increasingly low level? Ah, You have to go out with a sense of dignity, and it doesn't necessarily mean the top, top level. I think what Baggio went and did, was it a Brescia, where you're sort of clearly the fading star in a very average team? I think that's admirable because then you give that club sort of a happiness and a joy, a bit like the way that Crystal talks about, say, the likes of Decanio and certain players at West Ham. Baggio should never be there. Like Ronaldo's doing from his heart at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's nothing bleaker than a once glorious player's slow fade down the ladder of the Football League into kind of non-league obscurity. Those sixes and fives appearance-wise on their Wikipedia, like tailing off. 300 appearances for Liverpool and then... Yeah, and eventually it's just, it's a zero and then in brackets four sub-appearances, which you know he's been brought in because he knows the chairman to sort of pump the gates for a few weeks. I think that's really sad. But I also think 
I'm surprised at how young Peter Beardsley was. 38 back then feels like 50 now. Comparatively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. And I know obviously Ronaldo is <laughs> yeah. a kind of freak of a specimen in terms of like his physical ability and how fit he's kept himself. But Beardsley, if he was around now, I think would be playing into his 40s at like a fairly decent level. He's a sort of that kind of like Yari Lippmann where you're like, oh, right, he's playing at Ajax in a sort of substitute role, but he's still performing. Yeah, Peter Beardsley retiring, it feels like he was my granddad. But really, <laughs> he's five years younger than I am now. You're right about that. that in 1999, 38, you are ancient in 1999 if you are 38. Yeah, it's like, how are you still playing at 30? It's like, what? <laughs> how are you even walking? <laughs> <laughs> well, shall I tell you about Plymouth at this point? Because I was going to say about Plymouth, we've kind of covered what our teams are up to. Plymouth had a player at this time who I didn't realise he was still playing for us till I was looking at our results for 1999, and he scored. Who was Steve McCall, who won the UEFA Cup under Bobby Robson at Ipswich. Oh, wow. And was 39. <laughs> so he was still playing for Plymouth at the turn of the millennium. Did Ipswich win the UEFA Cup in... 70s, is it? Yeah, or maybe it was 80. 1981. So an incredible thing to have done to be still playing a lot at that period. It's interesting with Beardsley going down that much, that he was in the team that should have won the league in 1996, yet by 1999, he'd kind of just gone. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not that slow that you drop down the leagues, is it? It just suddenly leaves you almost. Yeah, maybe when it goes, it really just goes, though. It's not that it goes, it's gone. That's it. It's over. <laughs> I'm just trying to think, who of the Quitley Kevin alumni that we've spoken to had like a really good retirement? The one that sticks in my mind is like Paul Merson, where he's on the way out and then has that little period at Portsmouth right at the end where they win the league in great fashion, ran out, and he just reminds everyone like, oh, he is a Rolls Royce. He's still got it. Yeah. Players that had a great 30s. I think Beardsley is one of the players that had a really good... Th- he was almost in that Euro 96 squad from what I remember. Was he in it? No, I don't think he was in it, but... Players that had superb tail ends to their career, hello at quicklykevin.com. I'll tell you another one, Stuart Pearce. Yeah. I think he might have been playing for us when he was still 40. He was our player of the season. I think it was 2000, 2001, when he's 39 at the time, when he becomes our player of the year. Should we turn our attention to what's going on in football? December begins. Leeds United are top of the table. This is December 99, two points clear of United. So is that the Leeds under O'Leary? This is O'Leary. This is the beginning of that march towards Champions League semi-final, isn't right. it? Right. I think they are in the UEFA Cup this season. I think they have quite a good run. The top four, as the month of December begins in 1999, Leeds are top of the table, two points clear of United, Arsenal in third, Sunderland in fourth. Oh, yeah. Great times. This is a great period for Sunderland. Was this the Kevin Phillips season? Yeah, every season was the Kevin Phillips season. Yeah. I mean, if Sunderland are doing well, it's a Kevin Phillips season. (laughs) There you go, a lovely little excerpt. That's about 20 minutes of a much longer episode. If you want to get that full episode, you can join the Quickly Kevin fan club by signing up at anotherslice.com forward slash quickly Kevin or on your Apple podcast app. Exciting times. So much to look forward to in 2024, including Quickly Kevin live at the London Palladium. It's going to be magnificent. Tickets are on sale now. Plus, we've also got the end of series quiz to look forward to imminently. That'll be out very soon. So until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. Pretty simple.